You're listening to audio from Cibolo Creek Community Church. To learn more, visit CiboloCreek.com. So the last two Sundays, we've been talking about this idea of a redemptive community. We spent the first week just introducing the idea, like what is it? Um, what is the concept, uh, the, the, the way that the scriptures talk about this idea of redemptive community? Last week, we talked a little bit more about some of the foundational understandings of how a redemptive community works, what's sort of the recipe for that to happen in the midst of a church. And so just by way of review, we're talking about a redemptive community is a gathering of people. Now, these are people that share a certain affinity with each other, and in the context of redemptive community, they share an affinity around a faith in Jesus or the pursuit of a faith in Jesus. A redemptive community is a gathering of people through whom God is at work, and he uses the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Christ, the message of his death, his burial, and resurrection, and all that is captured in that, the power that's contained in the forgiveness of sin, in the, the gift of eternal life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's, here's the part that I think is really, really critical. God's working through this group of people to restore, to put back together again what has been ruined by sin. So today we're going to we're going to start moving from introductory material and we're going to start looking at practical applications of how life in a redemptive community actually works. So over the next four Sundays, we're going to look at very particular expressions of redemptive community. And I'll just give you a heads up. There's a part of all of the four of the next messages that can be a little uncomfortable because we're going to be pressing in on some things that we don't typically like to talk about. So if you want a one single word for what a redemptive community is, it's this, it's the church. The church, not the building, but a community of people gathered together around a shared affinity in Jesus Christ, they become a place through whom God does the work of restoration, restoring what is ruined by sin. Let's talk a little bit about ruin by sin. Here's what we need to embrace, that sin damages everything it touches. Whatever sin gets its fingers into, it's going to create some sort of destruction. So here's, here's the thing to, to understand about sin. This is the nature of how sin works. This is the nature of sin's impact. Nature of sin is that it confuses Sin loves to confuse things. I mean, folks, we don't have to look very far these days. Just look at our society. Look at things like science and gender and politics and government and power and a host of social sorts of expressions. And we are seeing all sorts of confusion Things that we know, many of us can look at and go, wait a second, that's not right, that, that's not good, but we live in a society that wants to approve it and applaud it and affirm it and accept it because that's the nature of sin is that it confuses the mind about the things of God. Sin complicates whatever sin gets involved in. It's gonna make it harder than it needs to be. Sin contaminates 
God had a certain design for the way that marriage was to work or family was to work or our careers, our jobs, the place they were supposed to hold in our life. And sin will contaminate that and make it something it was never intended to be. And sin, ultimately, it corrupts. It's very toxic in whatever it touches. So guess what? That includes us. That includes me, and that includes you. Because sin is a part of our life. I mean, think about it. Greed. Where does that come from? Covetousness. Lust, jealousy, impatience, uh, discontentment. Uh, lying, stealing, where, where does that all come from? It's not like we take classes in that. Why is it that with children, our, our, our youngest children, they'll hit or they'll bite or they'll lie to your face? Who teaches them that? Why? Because it's a part of who we are. That's called sinfulness. In theological terms, it's described as depravity. We are corrupt because of the nature of sin that resides in all of us. And and all of us, we have these things that we know are not good and healthy about our lives, and we would do anything to change them, but it doesn't always change. Why? Because that's the power of sin's grip in our life. Sin resides in all of us. Can we start there? And still be friends? Okay. Now, here's the truth. Most of us, we're very um, alert to obvious sin, the big things. We know murder's wrong. We know that armed robbery is wrong. We know that um, an affair outside of the union of our marriage is wrong. That's why we do it secretly and we hide it because we know it's wrong. We we are aware of like those big expressions of sinfulness. But the truth is that we're not always as diligent and not always as honest to the more subtle or sinister expressions of sin in our life. We don't always think of sinfulness in terms of like motives or our attitudes. And and today, I want to look at a couple of expressions of sinfulness, the impact of sin in our life that has to do with today's topic. Most people don't even think of these as areas of sin in our life. You ready? Yeah, you say yes. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about, let's talk about this. Insecurities. Now listen to me, listen to me. I'm not saying that insecurities are sin. What I'm saying is that insecurities are created by the impact of sin in our life. Insecurities is essentially fear. It's a lack of trust, a lack of trust for ourselves. We don't feel safe. We don't feel secure with who we are in the world. 
We have a certain fear that influences how we look at other people, and it leaves us feeling unsafe. People can't be trusted. We feel unsafe in the larger world around us and its intentions toward us. And so we feel insecure. Now, it's interesting. It's very interesting to me. We typically think of insecurities as something for like 15-year-old girls, junior high boys, because everything's changing and all this stuff going on in their life. And so they can be incredibly insecure. But here's the deal. A 14-year-old who never figures out why they're insecure and what drives all of that, they just become a 40-year-old insecure woman or a 55-year-old insecure man because we've never figured out where does that fear come from and why is it shaping my life? And if you never deal with it, you just grow up to be an insecure person. And as with adults, it's just more sophisticated and we hide it better. But it's still insecure. I've told you a little bit of my story. I, shortly after turning 50, I wake up and I'm like, wait a second, I'm not where I want to be. And I go into a two-year reflective cycle on my life. I'm like examining every part of my life. And part of that examination, I wake up to the fact that I had several insecurities that were literally crippling my life. At 52 years old, I go, wait a second. There's things I've always wanted to do and things I've always wanted to be, but my insecurities have kept me from pursuing that because one, I was afraid of failure. Two, I was afraid of what other people would think if I failed. And number three, I was afraid of trying anything that I wouldn't be perfect at the first time. So if I wasn't gonna be great at it, I wouldn't bother doing it. All insecurities, all driven by fear. We all live with a certain amount of insecurity in our life. Here's another one. Dysfunctions. There's ways that we are supposed to function in life that are normal and healthy and productive, but all of us have learned ways that are not normal, not healthy, not, not um, pr productive in our lives, but we don't even recognize them as being dysfunctional because it's the way we've always lived. Most of our dysfunctions are shaped in the homes of our origin. We learn them from the climate and the culture of our parents and our grandparents and our aunts and uncles and our brothers and sisters. And because they are accepted and adopted at such an early age, we go through our entire life with dysfunctional behaviors that we don't even recognize. So in relationship to today's topic, some of us, we grow up in homes when there's tension, where there's disagreement, when there's some sort of an argument, what some people learn as a functional behavior, that's ultimately dysfunctional, is they go, well, I know what I do now is I yell and I scream and I get big and I, I kind of throw my weight around and I bully. That's a dysfunctional behavior. We weren't intended to react like that in the face of tension and, and conflict. Others of us, we grew up in homes that when there's tension and conflict, we run and hide. We go to our bedroom or we go and we watch TV or we get in the car and we drive away and we avoid and we isolate and we do this passive aggressive thing where now I just won't talk to this other family member for a couple of hours, a couple of days, a couple of months. And we grow up with this dysfunctional conflict resolution pattern of saying, well, I'm never going to go back and visit what it is that we got into the big fight about. What I'll do is I'll just start easing back into normal life again. And I'll say, uh, would you pass the cereal? <laughs> What's on your schedule today? 
Hey, the kids need to be picked up at four. And we never go back and visit what it is that we got in the fight with. We're avoiding that. That's dysfunctional. It's not productive and healthy. Some of us, we grew up in context where we've never learned how to apologize. We've never learned how to reconcile a relationship that's been hurt. We've never learned how to restore trust again when it's been injured. And we've just learned that way of living, and we take it all the way through life with us. Here's another source of um, the power of sin and how it complicates our relationship, and that is wounds. Talking about emotional, psychological wounds. And some of you, some of us, you've had some really dramatic or traumatic things happen in your life that deeply injured you. Maybe it was when you were a child. Maybe it happened when you were a teenager. Maybe it happened at some other point in your life. But it was traumatic and it created an enormous psychological or emotional injury in you, and you've never really ever dealt with it, so you've just continued going through life with it. You've probably heard me describe before, if, if you left here today, and you were pulling out on the Ralph Fair Road there, and you weren't paying attention, and you got T-boned by a gravel truck, and you were like seriously injured, bones out, blood, all the works, we would, so I'm like, okay, okay, we get the picture, Paul, thanks. Um, <laughs> We would know exactly what to do. A helicopter would come and we'd air flight you to University Hospital and you'd be immediately triaged and you'd be sent into surgery and professionals would come in and they'd start putting you back together again. And then you'd spend a couple of weeks in the hospital healing and then you'd be going through some rehab for maybe months and learn how to walk again or how to use your hands again or how to get your mind to operate your body again. We would know what to do, but what happens in America particularly is when somebody is deeply injured emotionally or uh, psychologically, we typically don't know what to do, so we don't do anything. We just tell our kids, cowboy up. You'll get over it. Time heals all wounds. And what happens is because no one ever sets those emotional bones together correctly again, nobody ever heals up that scar. It just has like a, a little callus over. We just sort of go through life like this emotionally. And we just sort of crippled all through life. And we end up bleeding and pussing all over everybody that we come in contact with. <laughs> like, Wow. <laughs> Let me just say this. Sometimes that traumatic wound is your parents' divorce. Please, please do me the favor and stop the lie of telling ourselves that kids are resilient. They don't have a choice. They're four and five and six and eight years old. They don't have the maturity to know how to properly navigate the divorce of their parents. And it's a wound, and it generally impacts the rest of their life. And some of you, you are now 40 and 50 and 60 years old, and you're still going through life from the trauma that happened when you were eight. And that is the impact of sin. And sin corrupts that sort of experience and it ends up doing damage in our lives for years. 
There's another one that's an expression of sin that's particularly ugly. And that's just an arrogance or a pride. This is the person who's never wrong. They're always right. They never feel the need to apologize to anybody for anything because they are so arrogant to believe that they could never have contributed to any kind of relational issue. And it happens in marriages, and it happens in families, and it happens in workplaces, and it happens in churches. This is the impact of sin. Now, some people you meet here and they say, well, you know, you just have to take me as I am. I'm a straight shooter. I'm just honest and direct. And if you don't like that, I'm sorry, but that's just who I am. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with being honest and direct and being a straight shooter. I like honest, direct, straight shooters. What I don't like is honest, direct, straight shooters who use their directness to be mean and to be rude and to be insensitive. And that's a pride and an arrogance that is the impact of sin in our human life. So here's what we need to understand about things like insecurities and dysfunctions and wounds and arrogance is that our brokenness impacts how we get along with each other. It impacts what we say and don't say. It impacts what we do and what we don't do and that sometimes complicates relationships. I mean, Here's some other bumper stickers. Friction happens. And offense happens. And hurt happens. Why? Because of the power of sin and its grip in our life and our insecurities and our dysfunctions and our wounds and our arrogance. We end up hurting other people in the midst of going through life. Glad I came to church today. So you know what this means? A church. A church opens its doors to anybody and everybody who cares to come through them. A church opens its doors to anybody and invites them, hey, come and be a part of our family. Come and be a part of our community. We, we want to pursue being brothers and sisters in Christ to one another. We want to share a mutual interest in Jesus. And, and all of us, we come through these doors in our brokenness, in our mess. All of us, the preacher. I mean, what's your experience been? Every Sunday you've come to our parking lot and you've walked up the front doors and there's greeters there with smiles and their warm handshakes and the occasional hug to say, come on in. We'd love to have you be here. We're, we're, how can we help you? Can we find a, can help you find the children's ministry? Well, you're looking for the auditorium. You're looking for the restroom. We'd love to help you. Just all we want is for you to be here. Nobody stops you at the door and says, excuse me, but I could do a little survey. Could you tell me what your insecurities are? <laughs> Are you aware of any serious dysfunctions? We'd like to know those before we let you in. I'm sorry we don't mean to make you uncomfortable, but any serious wounds that maybe you're dealing with from 25 years ago? We don't do that, do we? We just open the doors, and anybody and everybody is welcome. And so we all come in here broken.
And the really sad thing is the churches are great in hiding that from each other. We hide behind our makeup and our hairstyles and our fancy clothes and our nice cars and our big houses and our deluxe vacations and we act like we got our together. And we don't. But we have a hard time being really honest about that. So it's inevitable that from time to time in the life of a church, we're going to hurt one another. We're going to offend one another. Things are going to be friction. They're not going to feel comfortable. Why? Because we're all a mess. We're all broken. Sin has complicated all of our lives. But we are invited to be a redemptive community, a place where healing can happen and hope is born and things can change. Folks, I've been a pastor for 30 years. I grew up in the church since the third grade. So I've been around church a long time and I've seen this really, really awful pattern. Somebody comes to church. Oh, they love your church. Your church is wonderful. They love the preaching and they love the music and they love the children's ministry for a couple of months, maybe for a couple of years, and then pretty soon they find something they don't like about it. They don't like the preaching anymore or they don't like what the children's ministry is doing or they don't like some of the decisions leaders have made. And they get wound up enough about that and they end up going to another church and they couldn't be any more happier to be at this new church because it's not like the church they just left. And they love it for a while. And then pretty soon they find some other things, some new things, some different things they don't like about this church either. And so they end up leaving and they go to another church and they like it for a little while. But then after a few months, a few years, they got complaints and gripes and criticisms about that church too and they move on. And it's interesting, if you look at the arc of the history of their participation in churches, they keep leaving about every four or five years. And the one thing that they fail to recognize is that the one common denominator of every church they've ever been to is them. Them and their brokenness and their mess and their arrogance to think that any community of people would be perfect and meet all of their expectations. And what happens in going from church to church is they never have to deal with their own brokenness, and they never have to face the power of a redemptive community that might hold them accountable to change. But that's the invitation that all of us have, is that we could be a part of a community and stick with it long enough and enjoy the benefits of being a family together that helps us wear off and smooth out some of those rough, broken edges of sin. Does that make sense? So this reality of friction happening and and tension happening and offense happening and hurt happening, it was such a thing that the authors or the writers of the New Testament letters, they actually address it because it was the truth and they talk to it and they tell Christians how they were to deal with it. And so... A redemptive community is designed to be a group of people who come around each other and help work through the behavioral dysfunctions and insecurities of our lives. So you interested in learning a little bit about that? Here's the image in my head, is what if we were a football team? 
And we got together, you know, in a huddle and kind of put our, our arms around each other's shoulders and we leaned in and put our heads together and we said, hey, what if when we go out, we run these plays? Like when tension happens or when hurt happens or offense happens, let's run these particular plays because that'll move the ball down the field toward a more redemptive community. So today I want to talk with you about some of the plays that the New Testament church was instructed to run in order to move the ball forward in a redemptive community. So it's interesting. Let's start with the big one. All throughout the New Testament, we find two themes that keep being repeated over and over and again about how life was to be in the life of a church. These two priorities, and they look like this. Love and unity. The overarching environment or atmosphere of a church is to be a group of people who are committed to loving one another, to taking good care of each other, wanting the best for each other, and loving each other so that we maintain a certain togetherness, a certain on the same page, a certain commitment to one another, a unity. But all of us, we do these things that can disappoint one another and annoy one another, and all of this gets threatened. But if there's this overarching play that we've committed to, no, I'm going to preserve love and I'm going to pursue unity. This will be good for my church and be good for me. In the scriptures or in the New Testament, there's a word for it. There's two words for it. It's this, bear with one another. There's these statements in the New Testament where overall the general rule, the play that you run is, for the most part, you just bear with one another. You recognize you're all broken. We're all broken. We're all a mess. We all got our insecurities and dysfunctions and our wounds, and we won't always get it right, and we won't always say what we're supposed to say, and we won't always do the things that we should do. That's the nature of human beings who've been complicated by sin and living in community. So there's just this part where we just bear with one another. We put up with one another. We recognize that we're not always going to get it right. It's founded in the idea of grace, that I just extend kindness to people because they're broken like I am. Look at this. Be completely humble. Be gentle. This is the way that the New Testament church was to behave toward each other. Be humble. Recognize that you're a mess too. And be gentle. Quit driving such hard bargains. Go easy on each other. Chill. All right? Be patient. Here it is. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep. Here it is. Bear one another in love, but then make every effort to keep what? The unity of the spirit through the bond of getting along with each other. That's instructions to the church. Look at this, Galatians chapter 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness. Here it is, humility, gentleness, patience. Look at this, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. This is bearing, putting up with the fact that we all mess up. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that all of you agree, get along with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united 
that you remember you're a family, you're in this together. And then, you know, 1 Corinthians, Paul writes such a wonderful expression of what all the different ways that love shows itself. It's patient. It's patient with broken people. It's kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not arrogant and proud. It doesn't dishonor others by gossiping and starting rumors. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It doesn't mean it doesn't get angry. It just stop being so angry about such little things. It keeps no record of wrongs. Remember that. I'm going back to it in a minute. Keeps no record of wrongs. Love, love doesn't delight in evil. It doesn't like to see sin have its effect in the life of the community, but it rejoices with truth. It protects. It protects other brothers and sisters by not letting somebody else talk negatively or rudely about somebody who's not in the room. It protects with the truth and it trusts and it hopes and it always keeps putting up with one another. So there's just the general rule of love and unity. So we ultimately, we have two options that when somebody hurts your feelings, somebody offends you, somebody does something, says something, doesn't say something, doesn't do something, and you're kind of feeling a little awkward and uncomfortable around them, you have two options. Again, in a redemptive community. Outside of a redemptive community, you may have a dozen options. In a redemptive community, you have two options. This is us coming to the huddle and going, okay, if you get your feelings hurt, somebody kind of tweaks you a little bit and you kind of get, get all riled up about it, you have two options. We only have two plays. You can either drop it or you can deal with it. Notice I have asterisks. When I say drop it, I mean let it go. Quit hanging on to it. Don't put it in your pocket. I'll use it against them someday. I'll just sort of tolerate them for a little while until they do something else to piss me off. No, no, drop it. Let it go. Forget about it. Forgive like God forgives you. He doesn't hold your sin against you anymore. Drop it. Quit carrying it around. If you find yourself, well, we're in one service now, but when we go back to two services, you say, well, they come to the first service, so I'll come to the second service. You're not dropping it. <laughs> You're injuring the body, and you need to own that. So when I say drop it, that's bearing with one another, being patient and kind and compassionate and forgiving and letting it go. They're a mess. I'm a mess. We're all broken. Or we deal with it. If it's serious enough, if it's significant enough, we deal with it. And the Bible gives us instructions on how to deal with it. And there's two ways. Look at this passage of scripture. Jesus, this is, this is Jesus, the one we call our savior, the one that we say is our Lord, one who say we follow, Jesus said, if you're offering your gift at the altar, that's worship. In this context, they're coming to the synagogue. In our context, we're coming to church. If you're offering your gift at the altar, and while you're singing, and while you got your hands in the air, and while you're listening to the service, you remember, because it could be the Holy Spirit. You remember, oh, 
that your brother, your sister, they have something against you. They've been acting a little weird toward me lately. I think I might have hurt their feelings. Things aren't the same as they used to be. If you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Jesus, leave your gift. Leave your gift there in front of the altar first as a matter of priority. You go and be reconciled to them. Then you come and you continue your worship. That's how important it was to Jesus. If you feel like somebody's maybe been hurt by you, and that's kind of on your heart and your mind, that may be the spirit of God saying, you know what I'm talking about. You know who I'm talking about. Jesus is saying, don't bother with worship. Just go and take care of it because the highest act of worship is you being reconciled with your brother. I mean, we gotta get this verse. To obey is to better than sacrifice. All through the Old Testament, God was teaching the nation of Israel, you can bring all the sacrifices you want. You can cut that animal up just exactly like you're supposed to and offer it just like, but if you're not obeying me, I'm not receiving the sacrifice. The obedience is if your brother or your sister has something against you, you are to go to them. It doesn't say wait till they come to you. You go to them. That's play number one, okay? We gotta go. We gotta, we gotta hurry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Matthew chapter 18. This is where you can join us here in the scripture. Matthew chapter 18. Look at these verses. If your brother or your sister sins against you. Now, there's some discrepancy between translations. If your brother sins or if your brother sins against you, it's such a subtle nuance, okay? either one. If your brother or sister sins against you, you go and show him his fault. Here it is. Just between the two of you. If he listens to you, then you will have won your brother over. Get it? Just between the two of you. Now, I counted up, that's 30 words. Okay, next verse. But if they will not listen, you go to them privately, you go to them personally, but they won't have this conversation with you. They're not willing to address the issue. If they're not willing to listen, then take a couple of other people along, one or two, not in a crowd. Don't carry your whole small group over to their house. No, just one or two, take them along so that every matter may be established. So you can talk about what's really happened by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I counted the words, 27 of them. If they still refuse to listen to you, then tell it to the church. That doesn't mean, hey, Paul, could I have a few minutes on Sunday? I'd like to tell the church about something someone's done to me. No, it's like going to the leadership of your church, asking for some help. Right? If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Wow. <laughs> and you know what's so dangerous about that is we think we know what that means. What it means is you treat them 
like Jesus taught pagans and tax collectors with love and grace and kindness. So that had 32 words in it. So here's what I want you to know. 89 words total in that passage, Matthew Matthew 18. 89 words do not constitute an exhaustive encyclopedia covering every possible scenario or situation related to conflict resolution. Okay, it wasn't intended to be exhaustive. It gives us some guidelines. Does that make sense? It's all sorts of different scenarios. It's interesting, later in the New Testament, we're given very specific instructions. What happens if the offense is the leadership of the church? Or what if it's something as such a a violent or um, um, immoral um, violation? There's a different way that the church goes about it. But when it's between you and somebody else, Jesus gives some very specific instructions. He says, you go just between the two of you. So the first step is asking yourself, is this worthy of addressing? Is it something that they're doing that's dishonoring to God? Is it something that's damaging my relationship with them as a brother and sister? Is it hurting other people and allowing them to continue to do it? Or is it hurting them and they don't even recognize it? That's the kind of things that we address. And the first rule is keep it just between the two of you. All right. (laughs) Because this isn't my first rodeo. I know how this gets violated all the time. And so do you. It's called prayer request. Yeah, would you pray for me? Um, So-and-so, she said something that really hurt my feelings. And I'm trying to discern what I'm supposed to do. You're a liar. Because you know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to have gone to her and talked to her privately. Not offered it up as a prayer request. This isn't you getting together with your small group and saying, hey, I'm in a really difficult situation. Me and so-and-so, we're not getting along. Could you guys give us some advice It's not getting together with your favorite homies, your favorite friends for lunch and going, you're not going to believe this, but I want to do the right thing. I just don't know. You know what the right, Jesus told you, you go to them privately, personally. Does that make sense? The objective is reconciliation. The objective is restoration of a relationship, not you getting what you want. That's so important. The highest priority is you keep it private and you keep it personal just between the two of you. If you don't do that, you're violating God's design for how a redemptive community was supposed to act. Okay, unless you're planning a surprise birthday party, unless you're planning a surprise, if you have to lower your voice close the door or look over your shoulder to see who might hear the conversation about somebody else, it's probably wrong and should not be continued. Does that make sense? One of the best disciplines of a redemptive community is other people learning to say, stop, I'm not listening to this. They're not here, I can't have this conversation with you. Have you gone to them personally and privately to talk about this? If you have and it didn't work out, I'd be happy to go with you and try to help hear it 
through a different lens, but I'm not having this destructive gossip reputation ruining conversation. That's not how our church works. All right, we, we, got, we got to go. <laughs> this is why we'll meet together in March, evening of the 3rd, I believe. I can cover some of this that we didn't get to. Um, ask for help. This isn't about finding the best judge and jury to go and you know, win your case. It's about getting a couple of wise, discerning brothers and sisters in Christ and say, would you come before I tell you anything about what's happened? Would you just come and sit with us and hear both sides of the story and help us work this out? Because what I want is to be restored to relationship. Don't infect the person that you're bringing along with you by telling them your side of the story. <laughs> I'm editing. You see, the person, the person who violates this personal and private instruction and wants to get other people in on their hurt and their pain, look at this, a perverse person, they just stir up conflict. A gossip separates close friends. That doesn't work well in redemptive community. Without wood, a fire goes out, and without gossip, a quarrel dies down as charcoal to embers, as wood to a fire. So is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife. Don't do it. Don't do it. And in the end, if you can't work it out, ask if your pastors would come and help you navigate the conflict. And at the end of the day, if the person is still resistant to whatever it is that you're trying to help them understand, then you just proceed in love. You be gracious. Because that's the instructions of our Savior, Jesus. Make sense? I'm editing. <laughs> Why is this so important? Because Satan loves disunity. He loves to corrupt. He loves it when conflict happens in churches between people. He loves to contaminate relationships and unity because it destroys the effectiveness of the church. Look at this. Each of you put off the lies. Speak truthfully. That doesn't mean be mean. Just be honest. Hey, something you said, it hurt my feelings. I didn't understand where that was coming from. Hey, I felt a little offensive, offended by what you did. Can we talk about that? Just speak truthfully. You don't have to be aggressive. You don't have to be mean to your neighbor for we're all members of one body. In your anger, in your hurt, don't sin. Don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not, here it is, do not give the devil a foot in the door of your church by gossiping and asking other people to pray for you and this thing that's happened between somebody else. Deal with it privately and personally. Go through the steps. But whatever you do, don't allow Satan an opportunity to destroy your church. Don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And please, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you're sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling. Get rid of slander 
along with every form of malice. Here's how the church is to live. Be kind, be compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. How? Just as in Christ, God forgave you in your mess, in your brokenness, in your dysfunction. I'm out of time. Romans tells us this. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with your brothers and sisters. You do what you know to be right and wise. Your brother and your sister may not be at a place where they're willing to receive it, but you do the right thing in the interest of your church, the interest of the spirit of God at work in your life, and the interest of what's good for your brother. Make sense? Wait till next week. <laughs> Let's stand together. Let's pray. God, I can't wait till we're in heaven and you start preaching and there's just no end. You go as long as you want. It's eternity. God, I, I pray. We just want a healthy church. We want a vibrant church. We want a church that's just used by you in so many amazing ways. And your enemy, our enemy, Satan, he wants to destroy it all. He wants to drive wedges between us. He wants to get our feelings hurt and rumors to start. And he wants us talking about each other behind each other's back, disguising it as prayer request. God, you don't want that. And standing here right now, all of us say to you, we don't want it either. We want to be a healthy, loving bearing with one another kind of place. And when our feelings get so hurt, we want to be the first to make the phone call or to send the email or to arrange a coffee and go and talk privately with the person who we feel distant from. Make us that kind of church. I pray and ask in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.